I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We're just coming over, swept to our last target, which was reconnaissance. And then basically my nav just yelled, Mandy, break right! And literally it was sort of like, boom, into the cassette, slamming my throttles fully forward, rolled to 120 degrees, pulled really hard towards the ground. He instantly puts all these flares out and they act as a decoy and a decoy to this surface where missile had locked onto my engine. Hello and welcome back to the Andy Rowe Show. Mandy Hickson is just the second female ever to fly the Tornado GR4 fast jet operationally. You're going to hear stories about how she flew bombing runs over Baghdad, how she escaped and evaded a surface-to-air missile that had locked onto her jet, and how she overcame repeated failure to succeed against the odds. Hope you enjoy the episode. Joining me today is an RAF pioneer. She completed three tours of duty and flew over 50 combat missions. She's a best-selling author and motivational speaker. Mandy Hickson, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, I've got my pleasure, Andy. Lovely to be here. Did I get the tours? Did I get all the facts right? Yeah, you did. You're all over it. Yeah, a guru. You were the second woman ever to fly the tornado operationally. Yeah. Let's start by talking about and educating people on what a tornado is. Let's assume people don't know anything about it. Let's start there so we can people can understand what a big deal this is. Yeah, so the Tornado GR4, you've got two variants of the Tornado. You've got a fighter, that which is the Tornado F3, and then you have the GR4, which means ground attack, basically. So it's a bomber or a reconnaissance aircraft. It's the it's the classic aircraft that if you ever saw a, no, a bit of news footage of a fast jet aeroplane taking off, lighting its afterburners as it goes down the runway and takes off, it would be a, probably a tornado. Okay, so it looks like what it's designed to do, it's a low-level penetrative attacking aircraft and it would go and drop ammunition and weapons, um, uh, missiles as well it has, you know, on targets deep into enemy lines. Well, and that's what you did. That's what I did, yeah. Okay, well, we'll get to that soon. How fast did they go? Around 1,000 miles an hour, kind of? Yeah, they can go up to speed of sound, basically. It depends what's hanging from it. So a Tornado F3 doesn't tend to have so many, like, big weapons hanging off it. So it's when you start, if it's sleek and there's nothing hanging from it, it can go really, really fast. So, you know, Mach 1.3 or something like that. But if it's got stuff hanging from it, then you start to limit how much G-force it can pull, the speed it can go, because obviously it's put pressure on these weapons and these fuel tanks and things like that that are hanging off it. Mark one, that's about 1,600 kilometers an hour, right? The reason you don't say it as a miles per hour or kilometers per hour is because it depends on the temperature and the pressure as well. So it's uh, it's done basically as, a, as that. But if it was ground level level in, not ground level, obviously, just above ground level, but in standard atmosphere, you'd be looking at about 760 miles per hour, I think. Ooh-wee. Quite well, fast. Well, we, uh, that is quick. I want to talk about your journey to get to that point. It's a rough old road. You got an RAF scholarship, didn't you? I did, yeah. You smoked the RAF pilots in an aerobatics competition. 
So there's no there's no questioning your skill or or your knowledge. But you almost didn't even get a look in to be a fast year oh, pilot. Oh, no, you didn't get over the starting line. Yeah. So so in the very quick canter through the background there. So started flying at fourteen. Really loved it through the air training corps and which was like the, the air cadets. It's now called the air cadets. And um, I, from that, I gained an RAF flying scholarship, which gave me 30 hours of free flying. I couldn't believe it. It was like, yes. And then to get your private pilot's license, it's only another 10 hours. So I saved up all my pocket money, got my private pilot's license, went off to university thinking, great. I joined this club called the University Air Squadron so I could keep up my flying. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm keen to join the Air Force. But at the same time, women weren't allowed to fly fast jets on the front line at the time. Um, Why not? Second year of policy, government policy. Um, it was men only. It was a men's only club. Kind of like golf, like no, like just like golf, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's that classic whereby women weren't even allowed. I mean, when my dad was at the golf club when I was young, we weren't even allowed in the front entrance. You had to go around the side and go in by the ladies' toilets, and you weren't allowed in the main bar. Oh, gosh, gosh, shocking. Anyway, yeah, in my second year of uni, they changed the rules and they allowed women to become fast jet pilots. I applied to join and I failed all the pilot aptitude tests. I, I failed them twice and you're only allowed to take them twice. So that should have been the end of the line for me. Um, but yeah, I was very lucky that I had won this aerobatics competition. The boss of this university air club squadron, the air club, you know, he couldn't understand why I'd failed all these tests when I obviously proved to be a pretty competent pilot. And he basically said, right, actually, I'm going to take this up through the ranks because I don't think this is, is right. I think maybe they've, there's unconscious bias towards men, maybe. And why is it so many women are failing the tests? And I was really lucky. They took me on in the end after a lot of debate and a lot of letters sent. They took me on as a test case, basically, because at the time they had only opened, just opened the doors to women. And about 80 percent of women that were taking these tests were failing them compared to perhaps 60 to 70 percent of men that were passing them. And they realized They've only ever been used on men and maybe they need to change the tests. And they did. Um, and that's something I've always loved about the Air Force is they are quite reactive. Um, or should I say they can be quite proactive as well to actually sort of think ahead. And, you know, I mean, the Air Force was the first of all the services in 2017 that opened its doors to women in every single category. Didn't you also get told you were a little bit overweight for the Air Force? Yeah, bastards. <laughs> Uh, she says on the world's biggest diet at the moment. I just want to say I've lost a stone and a half. You look great. You look great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, when I tried to join in for my flying scholarship, you know, I walked in and I did all these tests and everything. And then the doctor called me through and he went, mm, and I thought that didn't bode well. And he said, yeah, you're obese. I mean, I am six foot tall and I was, and I was about, you know, I was probably two stone lighter than I am now, by the way. So, or at this point, and he said, so I was 12 and a half stone. And he said to me, you're obese. Uh, I said, sorry. And I was doing all this county netball, hockey, tennis. I was more sporty than a sporty thing. And he said, um, you don't fit on the height charts. Our height charts only go up to five foot nine. So we're adding a couple of pounds for that extra, what, three inches, you know, which was what my head probably. Um, and they said, yeah, and you should be nine and a half stone. And I was like, oh my God. So basically I went on the world's biggest diet to get the flying scholarship. And they basically said, come back when you have remedied your obesity problem. So yeah, I lost about two and a half stone at that point. Um, and I got down to about nine and three quarter stone. Once you did get in, you've got your passing out parade, right? Where your grandpa was the guest of honour. Can you tell me about that and how special that was and give me a little bit of background to him? 
Yeah, so my grandpa was a Second World War pilot himself. He was an instructor in Africa, flying Oxfords and Harvards. And, you know, he told us some incredible stories of like, he said one day he was flying and he decided to push the limits and turn this aircraft inverted. And of course the engine stopped because it didn't have the the fuel mechanism to actually pump the fuel round and the oil round the engine basically for being inverted. Um, so he had to do a crash landing in the desert, uh, sort of dodging all these huge anthills. And these anthills are like massive. We're talking like, like two-story buildings. And he landed this aircraft and went, uh, mayday, mayday, I seem to have had a problem. And they flew an engineer out. The only way the engineer could get to him was to land on the exact same path that my grandpa had landed on. And um, they got out and they opened this engine cannon. It's just got oil everywhere. And it's like, sir, have you been flying the aircraft in no, no, there must be a leak of some sort. So they topped it up with oil, did a few checks, fired it up again. They both turned around and took off down this, past all these anthills. So I grew up with all these fantastic stories. And um, when they opened the doors to women, obviously my grandpa was over the moon because he only had daughters and granddaughters. So he had no boys in his family whatsoever. So there was no way anyone would have been following in his footsteps as far as he was concerned. Obviously, then I started to get an interest into this. And then when I graduated, it was his 90th birthday on the 6th of April uh, in 1995, which was the day I graduated. And he was invited as a guest of honour to hand out the awards. And it was such a wonderful day. I, honestly, I was so proud to have him there. And um, you're really limited to guests as well. It meant that I could have loads of guests because I had my grandpa and my granny and my, my sister and my mum and my dad. <laughs> you know, normally it's like two guests. Um, but no, we were there whole family wells table was uh it was brilliant jeez that's like being an all black and then getting given the jersey by your great granddad who was like an yeah. all black. So it's the same sort of thing i don't know why yeah. i use that as an analogy i've never been close to that <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. when you when you did get in and so you've gone you've gone through you've got the passing up parade awesome stuff and then you got you got in you know, the dream had been realised. How were people towards you? Like, how were the senior officers and things like that? Because you're, you're breaking new ground and you're sort yeah. of, you, you are treading on their toes a little bit. You are. So the, the first wake-up call to me was officer training, actually. And again, you've got to put the caveat, this is not how it is now. So anyone that's mm. thinking about the Air Force, this is not the world that you're joining now. But this was 25, 26 years ago. And when I joined, uh, women weren't allowed to drink pints of beer. So I always got two half pints because <laughs> I was like, there's no way I'm missing out on buying a massive round of drinks, you know. So, and I'm six foot tall. I'm a massively loud character, always have been. I have always been quite confident. And of course, now I've been told to be more feminine, you know, wear more skirts. And I'm thinking, hold on a minute, you're training us to be war fighting, you know, to, to go to war, to wear all our combat kit, wear a nuclear biological kit, be more feminine. I'm like, ah! So that really- You got told that. I got literally ordered to be more feminine. I mean, that was literally on this, this point, it was called Grey Tuesday. And it's like a point where they chop some of the, you know, you find out if you're being recoursed or if you need more help or more training. And um, he just said to me, yeah, you need to be more feminine. You know, you're very Amazonian in nature, but- you know, the fact you drink two half pints for everyone's, <laughs> I'm like, oh, for God's sake, this is crazy world we're in. So there was that initially. And and actually throughout my training, I, I was very lucky, not with my colleagues, by the way, with my courses. I was just one of the boys. I was just one of the team. And I think all the girls felt like that. You know, I never particularly thought I was cutting ground, new ground. I was just Mandy going through flying training. And I know that sounds mad. 
it's only when you look back on it now you go oh yeah that was quite pioneering we were sort of you know forging the way for other women to follow but we didn't feel like that at the time because we weren't the first so mm. we'd had joe salter who was the very first fast jet pilot she'd gone through about two three years before us so we weren't the first it was just we're just going through and doing what we love doing we never really thought about it but often you know it was the senior officers that caught us out so throughout my training and not just training but throughout my entire career I'd often be in a meeting and and I'd sort of they'd sort of go oh and what do you do and uh, you know quite a patronizing voice or something and you go actually well I'm a tornado pilot and they go oh oh sorry I just assumed you were the wife of your husband here and that you know he was the one that was serving I'm like no no I'm I'm the one that's serving and yeah. they caught them out every single time you know and that did annoy me it did start to grate on me a bit actually yeah didn't you almost crash when you were on training yeah so there was a couple of times so when I was at the very end of my operational conversion unit which was flying the tornadoes we deployed out to Canada and um that was the very final stages of training and I had a very very close shave actually when I think back to it we'd we'd done what's called you're pushing the limits ever so slightly on our fuel state we were doing air combat training at the time we deployed out to Goose Bay in Canada um, on a conversion I only had 30 hours of flying the tornado and we had to get these these merges in where you basically merge with your opponent my mate Rob and we'd have a big dog fight of you know classic top gunny thing of watch the mountains but you were at height don't worry there were no mountains and then you'd separate and you do it again you had to get like three in I think to get a tick for the um, flight to have actually counted and we the weather was closing in they said oh watch out there's thunderstorms we're like we can just get one last merge in and then we can get this tick you know the tick for the flight and so we had one last merge and I'm now on fuel minimums the weather's closing in and it feels like this whole you know when you hear these red flags of error chains sort of coming up and then they we came back for a an instrument approach because it was through really thick cloud and we'd been told that this there's a big runway uh, obviously at goose bay and it's basically it was divided in half and half of it was ridged because they often had really bad weather and it's a really wide runway and they said if it's really really raining or we call it contaminated run you land on the side that's ridged and if it's obviously not then landing you know on the you know on the center line and of course, I'm coming down on this approach. They said, would you take an approach from a trainee? I was like, yes, of course, because you have this can-do attitude. And I was probably a bit cavalier, maybe. I don't know. Um, and I took this and he's giving me this, normally like one degree left, two degrees right. And he's going, five degrees left, 10 degrees right. And I'm so in this is, and this is the trainee. Uh, the trainee is the guy yeah. in the air traffic controller who's guiding you in. Yes, yes. Okay. sorry, yeah. He's on yeah. the ground and he's a trainee as well guiding me in and he's like and I'm thinking this is either hideous weather or he's appalling and normally you know one degree and he's like five ten at one point he's sort of 12 degrees left I'm thinking oh and at 200 feet you have what's called your decision height and it's literally you look up can I see it can I see the runway yes I can I can land or you make a decision you go around but we're on minimum fuel as well so we pushed a few limits we're still legal and all that we're doing. Anyway, I've popped out of cloud at 200 feet and I'm not lined up on the runway. I'm lined up on all of the, um, it's called the apron where all the aircraft are all lined up and the runway's over here to the right. And I thought, I can still make it. <clears throat> so I'm below the cloud. So I do a flat turn, pull hard right, come back left, slam it on the aircraft at the runway center line. I'm like, boom, I am the girl. I've landed. Well done me. And then as I engage my thrust reverse to slow down, I have landed on the centre line and the runway is completely flooded with water. And of course, the side that's smooth 
my wheel just aquaplanes through 90 degrees and we spun and we're now traveling about 150 miles an hour fortunately down the runway but sideways and my navigator just said to me I'm not ejecting yet and I thought shit I haven't even thought about ejecting that was like not even in my radar at that point because the thing is you're really trained the brilliant thing with flying is that it's all about automatic programs so you've been trained and trained and trained in the simulator so as soon as we lost control and we started skidding he doesn't go oh man's we're skidding down the runway he goes loss of control on the ground and your brain goes that's loss of control on the ground drill. And you immediately pull out the correct course of action, which you have remembered and memorized because it's an emergency drill. And you're like, rock out board, da, 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 da. And you go through all the drills just automatically because you've done it in the simulator so many times. And it's that that saves so many lives as well, because, because you've been trained to such an nth degree, when then things start happening that's outside of the remit, you have the capacity to be able to cope with those because of your training. If you were then him getting the cards out, these flight reference cards, going, okay, let's have a look at loss of control on the ground. Okay, Mandy, what you need to do, you know, that takes time and you haven't got time. It's, you know, seconds mean lives being saved. It's like when you when you see people that are that are pilots, you often get quite envious of like, oh, you guys must be able to get around the country so much quicker than everyone else, obviously. Um, <laughs> during training and things like that, did you ever use the jet to get from a to b <laughs> oh you've read my book haven't you andy um Mate. yeah so i had a couple of times so i had this wonderful thing that we, we used when we were on training so flying the hawk in anglesey in wales it's not that quick to get anywhere from there and especially not when you live in winchester near southampton so by by road that would take five to six hours of a friday evening and if you're finishing at five you're getting here about midnight you know, and then you're returning to get back in decent time on a Sunday. So I was always leaving at lunchtime. Anyway, one of my instructors lived near Oxford and he said, well, you know what? Why don't we take, we can do a flight. We can do a sortie and they're called sortie, like a training sortie. So we're not utilizing the jet in any way that it shouldn't be utilized. And actually you can practice land away techniques. So landing at different airfields and build up experience. And of course we could land at Benson, which is about, an hour or 45 minutes from where I lived and about 10 minutes from where he lived. And so we would, on a Friday, make the last sortie of the day, a flight whereby we could do a full training sortie and then we'd just land, rather than landing in Anglesey, we landed in Oxford. And we did that many, many times and it was perfect. And then it meant on a Monday morning, um, the jets would launch out of Wales, out of Anglesey. We would launch out of um, Oxford. We'd all meet at the same point where we would normally have met. So there was, again... There's no cost to anyone. It's really, it was additional training. It's called staff continuation training as well. Um, and also the ability to learn to land at different airfields is really important as well. So yeah, you're using a few skills there. So that was the <laughs> first time. And, and then the second time was actually a really, it was a really mo emotional story, actually, to be honest, Andy. And it's when, again, I was on the Hawk and we were coming to the end of air combat training and the weather was really, really poor over in Wales, but it was great over on the east side of the country. So we deployed out to Norwich and we were flying out of Norwich International Airport. I don't know if there's any flights that go abroad, but, you know, they felt like they were. And we, everyone's like all these, we've called them civilians, but, you know, all normal people are walking around about to go on holiday or something. And we're in our full military kit. You know, we've got flares, we've got all the, you know, we've got everything sort of hanging from us. We're sort of feeling quite cool. And there was a tannoy and it just said, um, could could Mandy Hickson please come to the, you know, the the customer service desk or something and I thought 
this is a bit weird. And basically, my grandpa, who we touched on earlier in the the uh, episode here, he was about to die. Oh, and no. my mum had, had contacted Valley. This was the days before mobile phones. So she'd contacted RF Valley and they said, I'm sorry, they're not here at the moment. They're deployed to Norwich. They said, look, I'll give you the number we've got to contact them. So she contacted them and basically said, Mandy, I think you should know that grandpa's literally got days, hours, if not, you know, days, if not hours to live. And I looked at my instructor, who was a wonderful guy called Archie Brown, who I just loved. And I just went, oh, my God, this is a nightmare. And he knew how close I was to my grandpa. And um, and I said, he said, right, I'll send somebody can go off and get your bag from the hotel. Right, we'll be sorted. And then I, and I was like looking into trains and going on to, you know, ringing up National Rail and trying to work out the train. He said, Mandy, it's very quick to get from Norwich to Humberside Airport. And it's literally, if you think about it, you've got you come in sort of via King's Lynn and then you'd be up the you know Lincolnshire coast, whereas it's just straight across the wash. It's like a 10 minute flight. You can cut the corner straight across England and you're just straight across the wash and you're there. He said, why don't you book into Humberside for half an hour's time? Tell your mum, pick you up from there and we can get you to him within like half an hour. And we did. We, we were already briefed and ready for the flight, for a flight. And he and I said, are you happy to do it? He said, Mandy, let it sit on me. And it was a really, really big lesson for me, Andy, because I see businesses, I do a lot of talks to businesses and stuff now. And I think they do so many different schemes to buy, get people to feel, you know, empowered or bought into the company. And this one guy in this simple act, you know, made a decision as a middle manager. And, you know, I, I he bought more loyalty to the Air Force by that one act mm. than any paycheck would ever do because it just sort of showed me that the Air Force does care. And I got to my grandpa. I mean, my mum was hilarious. She was waiting. <laughs> She's waiting in the arrivals at Humberside International. And uh, she went, all these women were going, oh, is that a, all these people go, was that a fast jet that's landing? My mum my, my was going, it's my daughter. <laughs> it's my daughter. I to pick her up. I was like, walking through arrivals, you know, strutting my stuff. Anyway, but got to my grandpa and he died that evening, but I was with him and it means a lot. It really meant a lot. To, to do that and it was a just you know a wonderful example of an organization that does go the extra mile for the people that work for them what a beautiful story yeah yeah i think like what you're saying is quite quite poignant like with companies how you know you're right they do tend to try and buy loyalty with schemes and bonuses and different commissions and yeah. that kind of thing but sometimes it's just that little bit of human touch and empathy that yeah. can go so far when you joined your first squadron i'm guessing that the setup was geared a lot more towards males and females when it came to you know the yeah. barracks and how'd you fit in there did you have to just go in and be one of the lads yeah i mean anyone that ever served with me would go i don't think mandy had too much of a problem um I did just get on with it, to be honest. I think I was either very, very thick-skinned or a bit oblivious. I mean, when I went into my squadron on the sort of very early days, they'd never had a female pilot before on uh, the squadron. And I went in and there's, it's called the Junter Crew Room. It's the junior officer's crew room. And all like the screensavers were of like a scantily clad woman or something or naked women. And I thought, oh, do you know what? I don't really want to sit here looking at these every time I log on to this, this computer. So I made them all men. And then the next day they were all landscapes. <laughs> so I did make some small little changes like that. But the barracks, especially when we went on deployments, for example, to Kuwait and places like that, where we were serving over, flying over Iraq, you know, we were all in one barrack together. 
blocked together. Again, I mean, that's not a huge problem for me. And women who were in Afghanistan were intense with men, you know. So it's not an issue. And I think it's just something that you had to get your head around that you'd be queuing, waiting for a shower just with your towel wrapped around you. And there's a bloke with his towel wrapped around you and you're just having a conversation. And it doesn't, it didn't massively bother me. I mean, there was never a female toilet. I, you know, it was just a toilet with all these urinals. And I used to just walk in and go, I'm behind you. <laughs> sort of like, but I'm not looking. <laughs> you know, um, there was never any female flying kit. It was just generic men's flying kit. So I wore male long johns uh, with a Y front, you know, which cut into your hips, you know, these sort of. And I was just like, my goodness, I could go to Marks and Spencer's and buy a pair of bloody female long johns, but they weren't regulatory issue kit. You have to wear issue kit. And so it's like, well, get issue kit for women. Well, they didn't for like 12 years. I mean, it's crazy. So stuff like that was really minor stuff, but it was really annoying. Did you ever think when you were in Kuwait that maybe you'd made a mistake and that, you know, I think we've drawn a picture here that it was a very male environment. Yeah. You must have thought at some point, like, what the hell have I done? Yeah. The basic was the first time in Kuwait for myself. So I'd worked, I mean, to say I'd worked hard would be an understatement. You know, I've, I'd given it everything and basically there was one character on the squadron who was a really really big character sort of middle management level and he was really struggling being out there I didn't know that but he basically started a low-level bullying campaign towards me I would consider myself quite thick-skinned but it became very very obvious I kept thinking gosh, why does he ask every single question in every single brief to me? Now, there were other new pilots around, none of them got the questions. And I started feeling really uncomfortable. I'd walk outside the block and everyone would just fall silent if he was there because they were evidently talking about me. And I just, I began to feel this horrible sense of doom. And I mean, I don't think any of the guys could ever really put themselves in my position either. I'm really isolated, you know, I'm I'm a youngish person. I'm what 24, 25 years old. Um, there's no female company. I'm with a bunch of blokes that I have only known for three months, um, and it was really, really isolating. And I remember just ringing home to my boyfriend, who's now my husband, Craig, and just going, "I hate this. What have I done? I've made a massive mistake." But what was really interesting, Andy, just to finish that off and give completion to that story, was that when we got home. Um, I had never said a word to this man because I just didn't have the confidence because he'd eroded it. And also I was scared. I just thought, my goodness, he's a really big character. Everyone listens to him. Why would anyone believe me when I say, actually, you're bullying me? You know, and I think that's the case for most people when there is a bullying environment. And um, I was in the bar. It was a Friday evening. And my husband, my fiance now, Craig was now my fiance, was by my side. And he said, go and have a word with him. I was like, oh, my God, no. He was chatting to his wife at the bar. Mm -hmm. So Craig and I went over and we were chatting and having a few beers. And, and I said to him, I said, I just want to say, by the way, are you aware how awful you made my life in Kuwait when we were out in Ali al-Salem? You know, it was, I was truly miserable. You bullied me to some degree. And you know what? And I've actually seriously thought about quitting since. And he said, what? His wife hit him, obviously went, you did what to Mandy? That's appalling. Um, and he looked shell-shocked. I mean... He literally just, his jaw hit the floor and he went, what? And anyway, he obviously then thought about it all weekend. On Monday morning, he called me into his office and he said, Mandy, I've been thinking about what you said. You're absolutely right. And I want to just, uh, there's no excuse for it at all. 
but I want to just give you the reasons why. Basically, my wife has just had a baby, our second baby. I've only been with her for a couple of days before we left, and I'm now out in Iraq, and I was missing my wife. I was missing my daughter. I was missing the first two months of my daughter's life, and I'm angry. And he said, and I hadn't realised it, but I was using you as a vehicle to basically get rid of all my anger, and I'm so sorry. And you know what? I just thought, good on you. Good on you for, for really thinking about what I've said and for looking at your own behaviours, because it's so easy, I think, when, when you are bullied, just to bury your own head in the sand and just assume that it's you that's done something wrong. And it's never, ever the case. It's always that there's a problem with the bully. That's why they're doing it, to make themselves feel better for some reason. And that's exactly what this guy was doing. And we've been friends since then. I've never had a problem with him since then either. And it's not an issue. But it was because he had the, let's say, the strength of character to be able to apologise and to be able to reflect on his own behaviours mm. as well. And that's really important. When you actually were in Kuwait, you get there and like, your first mission is an actual bombing run, isn't it? Yeah. Like yeah, it old was. school, we're up in the air as in, in, in doing a proper run. Yeah, yeah. It was quite funny, really, because up to then we've been, the squadron mainly been just doing reconnaissance trips. And that's predominantly what we did most of the time out there was was um, reconnaissance. And we were just, we had all these cameras strapped onto the aircraft and we'd basically fly over at height at 20,000 feet. And the cameras would pick up all of the imagery of um, surface to air missile sites, radar stations, you know, any of the intelligence that we needed to gather, basically. And I walked in on my very first trip and this guy who's a really good friend of mine, um, I'm not going to say his name, but he knows who he is. And he basically said, right, today we're on a bombing mission. And I, he said, Mandy, your eyes went like these massive, massive saucers. And he said, you just look like this rabbit caught in the spotlight. <laughs> you know, and there's Oh, and basically, yeah, we were testing on this bombing mission. And, you know, I was really nervous because, you know, A, it's well, it's everything you've trained for. But and people say, oh, you know, did you not dread that? It's like basically training to be a footballer and finally getting called up to play for the, the big team, you know. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you're excited. But the one thing that I was really nervous about was that we, there's this piece of kit um, and it's a radio, a secure radio, and it's really stressful putting all these 20 different frequencies in to enable this radio to go into secure mode. And you've got to be sitting in the front seat, literally putting these numbers in and going, reading them and then sticking the next one in. And if you mess up one digit, it, it won't let you in. And it was really tight on time because you get really hot out there because you're obviously in the Kuwaiti desert. And you've got your canopy down and you're like sweating and there's no air conditioning and you're just pouring in sweat and you've still got your thermals on in case there's a fire. And you're thinking, oh, my God, I'm dying of heat. And you're putting these in the sweat coming and your oxygen mask is slipping off your nose. And all you're waiting for is this noise, which was doo -doo, and it basically meant it's loaded. And then you could do your radio check. And it was like, please let me do it. Right. Please let me do it right. <laughs> that was the most stressful bit. Really? And so, and then yeah. once you're up in the air, you're, you're heading towards Baghdad. Yeah. What, what what are you looking at? What are you seeing? So you've done quite a few training trips as well out there now. So that's over Kuwait without actually going over onto the live side. Um, and then once you're going across into Iraq, I mean, mostly it was desert. You're flying over a lot of desert. Um, you would go obviously over some slightly more built up areas, but you tended to avoid those because they were guarded by surface to air missiles. So you'd have these big missile engagement zones on yeah, the ground. Which give that a wide berth, yeah. 
Yeah, you give them a very wide berth. And yeah, we were often tasked. I mean, the, this one that was we were tasked to take out was um, it's called an SA-60. It's a huge gun that basically shoots up to about 30,000 feet. So we were on that occasion tasked to take this, this gun out. And we were on the target run and we couldn't positively identify it because you're given the site. We had this, it was called Tyal Thermal Imaging Airborne Laser Designator. Basically, it's a big camera that you, you focus in on, focus in on, and you're trying to look for this this site and your navigator in the back seat they've been renamed weapon systems operators because that's what they now do the system was running itself navigationally and and they were basically in charge of all the weapon systems so they're doing all the work and all you've got to do as the pilot is basically you're the taxi driver get them to the point where they can actually do their jobs and so we're all lined up and he is looking furiously and i could hear sort of you know i'm sort of going one minute and he's like continue 30 seconds continue now this is not good because normally at this point you're going switches going live weapons you know ready to drop and all this and at 15 seconds he so still not located it you know and actually we had to pull off in the end and when you look back on his footage you know the berm this big sort of like sandbagged area you could not see if there was a gun in there and our rules of engagement were such that you know we weren't going to just be ridiculous and go I want to release a weapon for some reason you know you're being tasked to take out a target if the target is not there or you can't positively identify it then you stick to your rules of engagement rigidly and that was something that I found really refreshing that you are bound by rules and there was no not one time did I say see any infringement of those rules with regards to my squadron and what we did yeah Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You tell a great story in your book about one run you did into Baghdad and it just looked like there was fireworks all the oh way in. Oh, my God, yeah. Oh, that was my second year, actually. So I was now on my second tour out there. And, yeah, we turned north and I was with this guy uh, in the back seat and he just went, man, so your gog's up or down? And we've got night vision goggles and they sit. You can have them. They're on like a hinge and they sit on your helmet. And once they're on the helmet, you know, you keep on hitting them into the canopy because it's, you know, there's not that much clearance. And he said, are, you, are your night vision goggles up or down? And I said, oh, they're up at the moment. And he said, yeah, leave them like that. But as soon as he said that, it's like a toddler being told what to do. And I was like, click them down. And I, it was like bonfire night or 4th of July, whatever you want to say. It was basically all of these, you could see all these surface to air missiles being launched and tracer being launched up, but nothing seemed to be being targeted. The Iraqis obviously were on a high state of alert. They knew that something big was happening and it was a bit about an 80 aircraft mission that was launched that night with all these different people with different targets and different um, taskings. But they were just seemed to be firing indiscriminately. They didn't seem to be sort of locking onto aircraft and using radar acquisition. And, you know, and, and so I wouldn't say there was a sense of like well-being at all because it was pretty horrific. You know, we were about to literally run through this but it just seemed a bit sporadic. It just didn't seem to be organized. So that was the only thing that sort of sat with myself where I thought, right, you'll be all right. They're not locking onto anyone. Wow. 
there was an incident where they did lock on to you at one point, didn't they? Yeah, they did. And that was my third tour then. So I was leading my first ever sort of combat mission um, because they build you up slowly. And I was pretty much the most junior within that formation. Um, and we were just coming back to base. I was going home the next day. So I was quite relaxed. And I was sort of fairly experienced within my own area now. And basically, we're just coming over, swept up our last target, which was reconnaissance. And then basically, my nav just yelled, Mandy, break right! And literally, it was sort of like, boom, into the cassette, slamming my throttles fully forward, rolled to 120 degrees, pulled really hard towards the ground. He instantly puts all these flares out, and they act as a decoy, and a decoy to this surface where missile had locked onto my engines. But we're, we practiced this manoeuvre you know, so many times, and suddenly this missile went from being locked on. We saw it taking our flares and it exploded about a mile and a half away from us and yet we may have uttered just a couple of small descriptive words at that point I cannot lie and but I also went oh because I'd never seen <laughs> I'd never seen the flares in nighttime leaving and they are seriously seriously bright and then of course when the missile took them and exploded on them thinking that they'd got a direct hit <laughs> The, it was like this enormous fountain of light that was in the sky behind us. And we obviously dived away and, and then radioed through. And then we were tasked to basically given a mission to take out a target that we were carrying as a response option. So again, that then the whole mission changed. And because I was leading it, you know, I had some really big decisions to make as the leader. How did that go? It, yeah, it didn't end up as well as I'd hoped, actually. <laughs> I sound like a right failure. By the way, I was a really good pilot, you know. Basically, we at that point were tasked to to, to take out a target. Um, we're taught this really good decision making model. It's called like Dodar. You diagnose the problem. You ask your team what they think. You then get them to give you the options. You make a decision, assign tasks and review it. You know, when you say it, it's, this, it's called the Dodar loop. So the very first, and, and British Airways use it with a T at the start. They say, how much time do we have? Because often in flying, you can be very time critical. So they'll say, right, we've got 20 minutes to make this decision. Okay. And you then at this point, if you're the leader, if you think how it often works in business, you say to people and you say to your team, okay, this is the problem, guys. You've just told them what the problem is. We don't do that. So the first bit of the diagnose is that you ask your team, because you know what you think the problem is in your own brain. You ask your team, what do they think? And suddenly you're not just spoon feeding them because what you're trying to get away from here is that whole sort of contamination of your ideas to somebody else. And so basically you say to your team, what do you see the problem being? At this point, if they say, well, I see that we've got a right-hand engine failure, you go, that's what I see too, good. We're both on the same page. But they might say, actually, we're seeing, I'm seeing a right-hand engine failure, but actually I think this is led on from something and something and something. And you thought, oh my God, I never thought that. But if you told them what you were thinking, because often you're the most senior, they would agree with you. So you're getting a junior person to basically give your input. So once you've got that diagnosis and you're all on the same page within a team now, you can say, right, guys, within your little groups, I want you to think about options. What would you do about this? So they start basically thinking a bit outside the box on what they would do. And then you pull all of those ideas together. But you as the leader make the final decision. But you're not doing it. Um, it's not just a nice way of just basically being this collaborative decision making. You're not you're using option generation to the best of your abilities. And then you as the leader are still actually making a, a decision. Once you have made that decision, then you assign the tasks. And then that really, really important aspect is the, the R, the review. Because I like to say, give me a reason. Give me a reason not to do what we think of doing. I know that sounds a bit mad, but 
if you think about it, you know, you've met, you've gone down a course of action and then there's this snowball effect, isn't there, where you go, I, I join a gym and then you just keep on paying your gym membership even though you're not going because you're actually sort of in this cascade down of just doing this. Basically, once we've invested time and effort into something, we tend to carry on doing it. But having that R stops you from doing that. Give me a reason not to. And actually, if you can't think of a good reason not to, then it is a good decision. And then you get on with it. And it's sped up decision making. It's given people um, something to hang their hat on and stop procrastinating around decisions. And it's now I've shared this with so many different businesses and the police force use a similar model. Theirs is a they call it NDM, the national decision making model. But it's a very similar concept. Well, it's such tangible skills that you can anyone can take away and use in their own field. How did you use it? when you had just been shot at and locked on by a surface-to-air missile. Talk me through your process on on what you did next. Yeah, so what I did next was, well, we radioed through to command. Uh, Command and control were sitting in a big AWACS aircraft over the Persian Gulf. They tell everyone to stand by. They inform everybody what the situation is. And while they think about... All the aircraft that are airborne are carrying what's called a response option. So you, at that point, can get tasked to basically prosecute an attack on a target once an aggressive act is made towards any one of those coalition aircraft. And so here we are. So we're sitting there. We are running out of fuel. We worked out. So immediately I was like, right. Number two, work out exactly how much fuel we need to get from where we are to our target. Number three, you know, so we start to think about assigning tasks, basically, at which point command and control say, right, you're cleared to go towards your target. But now we're thinking, if we go, we're going to run out of fuel. So I'm asking, constantly asking my team, what do you think? Give me the options. Someone said, what about going to the tanker? I said, okay, somebody who said that, number three, work out how long it's going to take us to get to that tanker in Saudi Arabia, locate it, and then get back on task. So again, you're constantly, someone's giving you an option, right, Let's run through that one. You action that in your own cockpit while we're managing all the other scenarios. And basically, after all the input, we decided to head to the tanker in Saudi Arabia. And we got down there and it wasn't our British tanker because ours had broken on the ground. And it had been replaced by an American tanker, which is called KC-135. And I just, as it happened, I wasn't cleared to tank from this aircraft type. I'd never done it before in daylight, in training or anything. And it's got a very different refueling system. So on a British aircraft, you have this hose that hangs out the back and has a basket on it. And you extend a probe and you go very slowly towards this probe and you put it in the basket and then the fuel flows. With the KC-135, it's on the end of this drogue and you have this drone operator and he basically flies this basket towards you and you're meant to just form eight. Um, But again, it's just a different system. And here I am, it's now about three o'clock in the morning there's a sandstorm around. It's not our British tanker. There's a massive queue. We queue up. We're running out of fuel because I've used so much more fuel on this evasion um, technique. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. And so I, my boss was in my formation. And I said, sir, I've never I'm not clear to tank on a KC-135. And I said, can I have a go? And he said, you can have a go. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, the pressure is on. You know, only woman on the squadron, leading my first mission. I had a go at tanking and I, and I wasn't successful. That's probably obvious. It was obvious I wasn't going to be successful. I mean, the stress level on my stress bucket was literally overflowing. So there wasn't probably much chance I would be successful. But anyway, I said to my backseater, I said, um, I said, I'm going to stop. And he sort of went, I'll press on for a bit longer. And it was in this moment where we had a bit of a discussion I decided that we wouldn't carry on 
because it, we were running out of fuel very quickly. And I thought, my goodness, if I do carry on, it could prevent now the rest of my team from even refueling. We've got a job to do tonight. If this mission now, it doesn't involve me, ironically, due to my lack of skill training or experience, then I've got other people more qualified. So I backed off. We ran out of fuel. We had to divert back to base with my number four, but number two and number three were successful. They managed to refuel. They went back into Iraq. They located the target and they, they basically destroyed it. I landed back at base and I felt like a failure, an absolute failure, Andy. My shoulders were bent down. I thought, oh my God, I can't believe it. It's been the worst possible night of my life. You know, near death, uh, failed fail to tank. I just felt rubbish. And the first thing that happened was that um, the backseater put his hand on my shoulder and went, that was a really good call, Mans. And I sort of said, why? And he said, well, my last job, I was a trials officer. Um, and I spent three years basically on the development and the trials of this weapon, this brand new, it's called an enhanced paveway bomb. And he said, it's never been dropped in any theater of war in the world. And we were about to be the first team to ever drop this bomb in anger. And he said, I'm sorry, but when we were up there, I just couldn't believe we were so close to basically dropping this bomb in anger. And then we couldn't do it because you couldn't tank. And he said, I felt really, oh, for God's sake, just try a bit longer. But he said, you made the right call. And he said, because you know what? You weren't emotionally involved in it. I was emotionally involved. And it, and it, again, great reflective behavior from him immediately to have this discussion with me. And he said, you know, no good decisions ever get made, made when there's emotion involved. And I thought, bloody hell, shoulders inflated a bit now. I didn't suddenly feel like this failure, like I'd let him down. Because it's all about letting your team members down, really. Mm. And then I held the debrief and we heard that we had had a direct hit on target. We were one of the only successful formations to, to basically complete our mission that night. And when I took that call, I fully inflated. And I suddenly thought, actually, you've done a good job tonight, Mans. You know, you've led the mission. You've made some really big decisions. You've gone through the book on how to make good decisions. You've been accountable for your own decisions. But also the, one of the really big things for me was the empowerment that I felt because my boss was in that formation and, you know, he tasked me to do this mission on what was a pretty easy evening, considering you're flying in a war zone. Um, but once I got shot at, you know, the complexity had gone through the roof and I think it would have been very tempting for him. And if you think of any leader in a position when the shit hits the fan, it's easier to say, I have control, I'm taking over. But, but he didn't. And that's not the way it works in the military. When even a junior team member has been tasked to do something, you continue to do it. But you can ask and, and get advice. But in doing so, what are you creating is this really empowered team, aren't you? Because you're mm. giving someone a job and they're seeing it through to fruition, to the end. There must have been times in that environment where you thought that you weren't good enough. I know you've talked about how um, you know it was a tough environment, obviously being a female pioneer and all that kind of stuff. And um, and fair enough. But there must have been times. Not only did you not enjoy it, but like, did you think that you weren't good enough? Like the imposter yeah. syndrome side of it. Yeah, absolutely, Andy. And I think, and I talk about the imposter syndrome in my book actually, because I think since I've been since I left the air force ten years ago. Um, and I do a lot of speaking, motivational speaking. And to be honest, before um, COVID came around, it was the business was going really, really well. I was traveling worldwide, delivering at really high level. And I was really, really enjoying it. But I always still suffer from imposter syndrome. And I don't think it ever truly leaves you. And it's madness, really, because, you know, I'd grown, I'd done pretty well in the Air Force. I'd had a successful career. Um, I'd achieved you know, a major goal that I had, which was flying the tornado. Um, 
when I came back off maternity leave, having had my children, I massively suffered from imposter syndrome. I just kept thinking, oh my goodness, I'm never going to be good enough. And it, and I, I want to use this because I think this is such a great analogy. Confidence is like a muscle. If we don't use it, then we lose it basically, don't we? And actually, I think for a lot of people, specifically women, if they have had a career break around kids, you've not been thinking work, you've not been even in that zone and you come back after your six months or a year and you think, I'm never going to be able to do this again at the level I was before. Uh, me getting really worried before, every time I get to do a speech and I got asked to speak in um, to the United Nations in Vienna. All right. The, Gee, worse. Yeah, all right. I'm like, happy days. Yeah. And it was basically to the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, um, about cultural change in the nuclear power industry. Oh, God. Now, I thought, yeah. I mean, I'm all over that, obviously, yeah. because I've got so much knowledge of nuclear power. I mean, but it's okay I, to feel like an imposter in that situation. I'm going to give you credit on that one. Like, thanks, Andy. Yeah. And I was absolutely bricking it. And I've always been someone that says yes and then worries about how I'm going to actually action it afterwards. And it was so funny because I said, yes, yes, of course I can do that. And then my husband was going, are you sure? Are you sure you're not going to be found out on this occasion? I was like, oh, God, you're right. I don't know what I'm talking about. Why on earth have I taken it? And um, I'd left it. I remember I was sitting outside the front door in the sunshine, you know, pre-lockdown. I still did that, you know, and I was writing up this presentation. And my husband was going, oh, aren't you doing it in three days? I was like, yeah, I just need to get it done. Leave me alone. I'm really stressed. He was like, this one would have been really good to get done with a lot more prep, wouldn't it, man? They were like, shut up and leave me alone. <laughs> anyway, I flew out to Vienna and I'm sitting in this room. Oh God, it was bloody hilarious. So um, I see my name on the podium at the front and there's 200 or so men, all men, sitting around this thing. And there's all these translators sitting around behind them. It was like going on to something I'd only seen on the TV, you know, like documentaries. And I was thinking, oh my God, I am so outside my comfort zone. You know, what on earth have I got to say that's of importance? And I was basically just doing this whole, I'm not good enough. Oh my God, they're going to think I'm a fraud. This is stupid. I really shouldn't be here. And all of these demons were just going, you're rubbish, you're rubbish, you're rubbish, you're rubbish. And I was sitting on this podium, two things happened. Firstly, I was speaking at 0940 in the morning, and I mentioned that for a good reason. Um, and secondly, I started to listen to these two blokes before me. They were absolutely rubbish and they were boring. And what they had to say was quite boring. And I thought, my God, mine's much more interesting than that. And also, I think it's much more relevant to these guys as well. It was all around creating the right culture, basically, to mm. get away from this blame culture. And it's something they've worked on a lot in the aviation industry. And that's why I was speaking about it. And I thought, I, I can do this. And then I stood up to do my talk and I turned my mo I was turning my mobile phone off and this guy had said to me what are you doing with your mobile phone I was like um I'm turning it off and he said no 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 we gave you an app and that's how people ask you questions here in this forum they do it via the app no one can speak to you you know they type it into their thing and, and you get the question up on your phone so you must leave your phone on I thought oh bloody hell I've had a bit of a hideous incident with a phone previously well we can talk about that in a minute we can if you like and uh, I thought I don't really want to leave this phone on but I did and I stand up at 0940 to do my speech and a message pings up and I thought bloody hell someone's asking me a question already and I look down it's my bloody husband and at the exact moment I am due to start my speech which he knew was 0940 he pings up a question he says I'm really proud of you but do you know where my work shoes are <laughs> you bastard <laughs> Now, he had assumed my phone would be off, admittedly, but I. this is how cool I was at this point. I texted no and a kiss and sent it whilst I was standing on the podium because now I'm thinking I actually am good. Oh, you got <laughs> it. Yeah, it's clutch. 
Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting that the imposter syndrome does bite people. And it and it's been a brilliant one, I think, for me to talk about really openly, because I think it has just given a lot of other people a voice about it as well. Yeah, there must have been moments in the in the Air Force where like things just weren't set up for a female. So you're like you would have been thinking, what the like I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be in this situation. Even even things like going to the bathroom must have been tough. Oh God, yeah, that's a nightmare. I mean, you try to have a wee in an aeroplane is a, is a, another world of difficulty. Yeah, I basically gave myself a kidney infection from holding on too long once when I was flying over Iraq. So the following year, I was determined not to have that problem. And uh, we got airborne and again, started to need a wee after about three, four hours because you have to fly hydrated as well because you know if you have to eject, you don't want to be dehydrated to start with. And so I drank quite a lot of water on the ground. Now we're in the air. I'm like really needing a wee and think, oh God, and I've got this water bottle next to me. It was a half litre bottle. So I just remember thinking, oh bloody hell, it's full. I'm going to have to wee in the bottle. So I'm going to have to drink the water. So I drank the, the half a litre. And then I think right now I can wee in the bottle, but you've got to take all your kit off. You have to put your ejection seat pin in. We are over a rack still. I'm meant to be flying the aeroplane. I've got the stick between my knees. It's like trying to, you know, drive us with your steering wheel on a road, you know, with your knees. I'm taking all this kit off and I'm thinking, right, you're going to have to power wee in this bottle. And I've got the guy, a guy, lovely guy, Sharky in the back seat. And he's going to me, SA6, right, two o'clock. I'm like, shut up, I'm trying to have a wee. He's like, I know, man, but I've got to call the threats out, you know. Can you just step us left 10 degrees? I'm like, left 10 degrees around this surface to end missile that's starting to look at us on the radar, you know. And I'm there, unstrapped. If we get shot at this point, I can't, we, neither of us can eject, you know, because our seat is now physically got a pin in it so you can't pull the handle but i mean if you got a shot at it would solve the problem of needing a wee pretty quickly it would it would absolutely let's look at the positives on that mm. one but um yeah and in the end i was trying to power wee into this bottle and failed and i'd also now made the whole situation 10 times worse because i was now even more desperate because i just drank another half a liter of water oh, but dear. actually i did get the infection on that occasion which was good <laughs> what was the situation around the phone that you mentioned before Oh God, it was the most hilarious and embarrassing incident I've ever had in my whole life. And um, I just remember telling my friends about it and they were like, oh my God, Mandy, you should go on the bloody stage with this because it was just priceless. Basically, um, post having had children, um, uh, a base called Boscombe Down, you have to go through nuclear, biological and chemical warfare training every year as part of your, your currency training. And there's a lot of kit that you have to put on for that. So we're we're going into a gas chamber basically to do all of our drills and they're going to fill this gas chamber with a noxious gas called CS gas. And it's horrible. If you get it in your eyes, your eyes start streaming, you start coughing, your nose is running. So you don't want to breathe this stuff in. So you, one of the drills that you have to undertake is you have to actually remove the gas mask and you have to decontaminate your face whilst holding your breath. And then you put the mask back on, exhale and clear all the noxious fumes out. And then you breathe clean air. And a lot of people panic. And now I was quite long in the tooth by this stage. There were a lot of young people that were going through with me, 18, 19 year olds, all new trainees that are in. And they said, actually, ma'am, are you happy to stand at the front? Because you can just be a bit of my like my role model. You can be the demonstrator for this, you know, run through the drills, show the guys how it's done, just refresh them. I was like, yeah, of course I can. You know, I've done this so many times. I've done this like, you know, 16 years. Anyway, we're all set up and we're about to do this. The gas chamber is full of smoke. And I thought, oh my God, it's my mobile and it's in my top chest pocket. It's like vibrating furiously. It's under about four layers of clothing. And I was sitting there, I thought, I'm going to do what any good officer would do. 
ignore it and look accusingly at the youngsters. <laughs> and they're like having none of it. They're all looking at me. And the sergeant, after about six rings, went, ma'am, turn your phone off. I was like, sorry. And I start hitting my chest in a vain attempt because it was these old fashioned ones where you actually had like proper buttons, you know, pre the um, touch screen. And so I'm hitting my chest in a vain attempt just to turn the ringing off. And in doing so, I must have hit the green button, which is the answer button. And it was a voicemail message. And this noise of this voice suddenly just comes out. Where's my sexy woman? And I thought, oh shit, it's my husband. And I basically started, I was hitting that and everyone starts looking at me and they're all like starting to laugh at this point. I and mean, just imagine the scene, everything gas masks, thick cloud of gas mask smoke, all, you know, gas all around us. This noise of where's my sexy woman? And basically it was my husband and he wanted to tell me the fact that about a month before this, he'd had a minor operation that men have when they decide not to populate the world any further, let's just say. And he'd had all his kids by now. So he'd had a little snip. And he's gone into the hospital to have the follow-up appointment, which basically means you've got to produce a sample. He decided in graphic detail to share exactly how well he performed, how he, what about he thought about the, the reading literature that had been left in the cubicle, how well he'd got it all into the test in every detail. And I am still furiously proud. The guys are bent over double. I am laughing. I've got tears pouring down my face. My face is bright red with embarrassment. All my pores have opened and the CS gas has literally been absorbed into my skin at this point. And in the end, the, the sergeant who was running went, everyone out. And we had to do, we all ran out of this gas chamber. Still couldn't turn him off. He's still going, you know. And basically we were all out. We all pulled our gas myself and everyone's just like bent over like, and I am, <laughs> I've got a oh really my God. awful laugh. How embarrassing. The funniest incident I have ever been involved in. That's amazing. I, yeah. Oh, my it's days. Your, your poor husband as well. I know. He's been the butt of many of my jokes. <laughs> oh, fair enough. And you're, you've got, you've got obviously got your book out um, that you've released, An yeah. Officer, Not a Gentleman. I see yeah. what you did there. Very clever. You've just done the audio book as well. You've you've just uh-huh. rested. How how's the overall how's it all going for you? Because you, you didn't you've done it all yourself, haven't you? Yeah, I have. So I tried to get a publishing deal. Uh had a great literary agent, but we didn't manage to secure a deal, unfortunately, which was really sad. And it stalled the whole project by about a year and a half, two years, basically, while we were trying to get a publishing deal. But I was rejected from one publisher, and I love this, because they said, because plain books are for a male readership who have no interest in a woman's story. And I was like, bastards when, you know, when, how long ago was that that was probably three years ago now when i got that first rejection letter from them now i know you get rejection letters but it was just the fact that i just thought oh all my life i've been in this male environment mm. and now you're just telling me that men wouldn't even want to hear about it and do you know what that's been proved absolutely not to be the case because it's sold just under seven thousand copies now it's been the best-selling book on um in the aviation category on amazon for it's either number one or number two i'm in i'm in a fight with one other guy you know um who's got a great book out and we just we we flip-flop between the two of us but it's been pretty much up there for the whole of the time since it's been released and i actually contacted this company and i said to them look i just wanted to let you know it's sold a lot of copies it's doing brilliantly it's been a bestseller you know i just thought i'd give you a second second chance because i'd still like to get a publishing deal because i'm really keen to get into america if there's anyone out there listening to this podcast or, you know, any other countries, I'm very open for publishing deals. And um, and they said, 
yeah, we would love to. And by the way, you've done a brilliant job. And she said, I've actually read it. I think it's a fantastic book, but you've done so well on PR for it yourself. There's probably not a lot else we can do. I'm like, damn, again, shot in the foot. I've been too good at doing what I was doing and therefore they still don't want me. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's so there's so much tangible stuff in your book as well because you make makes people feel a little bit more like they're listening to themselves if that makes sense at some at some yeah. points and 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 how you overcome those obstacles uh, which is which is really unique well i think it's really important to have humility and you know what life was not that easy to get into it to do it to get to to do what i did but it's not for many people you know, and I'm more than aware that, you know, a lot of people struggle to get to the positions they have within their workplaces or within their lives as well. And I think, you know what, to, to be able to read about someone that they might go, oh, my God, she's had it all. But my God, you know, she still is really humble about it, that she still talks about her failings, that it's not all, oh, look at me, I was really successful, you know, and there's a lot of humour. And I, one thing that I was really keen to do about the book, because I worked with a really great friend of mine to write it, um, one of my friends from university, who's a brilliant writer as well. And, you know, when we were talking about it, I said, yeah, I really want my humour to be there. And, you know, we got that. I think we nailed that as well, because people have sort of said, oh, my God, I was like laughing out loud at a certain story. And, you know, and I said, oh, that's good. And they said, I can hear your voice. And so when I did the audio book, they were like, not only can I hear your voice, I actually really can. You're like literally going to bed with me when I'm listening to it. I'm like, happy days. Oh, you see, you've <laughs> certainly done that. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and best of luck with the book. I think it's going to continue to grow and hopefully people that listen to this podcast go out and find it and, and enjoy it like I enjoyed it. Thanks, Andy. Um, you know, it's been an absolute pleasure to join you as well. So, um, you know, good luck as well with the podcast. Continue to grow. Thanks very much. And thank you very much for listening. Don't forget, if you like this episode, to subscribe and share it with your mates. We'll be back again next week.